Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 42 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. In today's episode, you're going to listen to the conversation I had with Chris Corfis, who is a teacher, coach, and business owner from Chicago, Illinois. I first became aware of Chris as a coach through his article series, which was on both Freelap and Simply Faster. If you read those articles, you'll see that Chris has some absolutely incredible numbers that he's able to achieve with his athletes, who are mostly high school athletes, but also include professionals, uh, world champions. So an an extremely broad range of experience here. As you'll hear in the conversation, in just this year alone, Chris has helped to produce several 10-5, 100-meter sprinters at the high school level, which is incredible. He regularly shares videos of his athletes vertical jumping in excess of 40 inches, which is considered elite level, even at the NFL Combine, let alone with high school athletes. He works with one of the best high school football teams in the state of Illinois, with the results to back it up, and he's done all of this with no squatting, no Olympic lifting, and a ton of outside-the-box thinking. He really goes against conventional thinking and conventional methods, but he has the numbers to back it up. And it's for this reason that I wanted to talk to Chris to understand what he's doing, what he thinks is important, and what really matters in training. This took up the bulk of the conversation, but we also spoke a little bit about reflexive performance reset, which is Chris's adaptation on a technique named Be Activated, which was developed by a South African physical therapist called Douglas Heal. This is a system that Chris has developed with Cal Dietz and JL Holdsworth, who are both elite level coaches in their own right, uh, which uses a variety of different manual therapy techniques to try and achieve better positioning and performance in the body. I've started to use it with a couple of athletes at Toshiba, and I have to say the results are extremely promising, so I wanted to talk to Chris about this so I can understand it in greater detail and hopefully roll it out across my entire squad. We finished up the conversation with a short discussion of the track and football consortium that Chris has set up with Tony Holler, who is another coach from Illinois, what the thinking was behind setting up the consortium, what kind of coaches attend, and what kind of ideas are discussed and shared amongst the attendees. If you'd like more information about this, make sure you listen to the end of the episode, as Chris will be providing you with more details on this. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month we offer a 60 minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice on all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep, and climbing the ladder.
So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members and enter the code word trial. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just one pound. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it. There's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Chris, how's it going? Good. How are you? Man, I'm awesome. I've been looking forward to this one for uh, for quite a while, so I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, no problem. I really enjoy your stuff on Facebook and the other stuff you post out there, so I'm looking forward to it too. Even the offensive stuff? <laughs> yeah, I, I look past that. <laughs> so, you know, the older you get, the more conservative you get. And yeah. So you... <laughs> I was like, show me... Um, Show, show me an old liberal and I'll show you with someone with no brain. Show me a young conservative and I'll show you with no heart. Winston Churchill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for people who are not familiar with you, what's your background and, and what are you currently doing? Uh, I am a high school track coach. Um, I'm a U.S. history teacher. Um, I... Uh, so I own Slow Guy Speed School, which is a gym. It's not really a gym. It's my basement, my driveway, and my street. But I have uh, probably, I would guess, probably the best collection of equipment in the world. I have 1080 Sprint. I have K-Boxes. I have Gym Aware. I have all those things where I can measure data on just about anything you want. I use uh, Swift Speed Lights for not only timing but for agility training as well. Um, I also, uh, I'm a co-owner of Reflexive Performance Reset, which is, uh, a performance technique to get your body to work properly. Uh, and it is a, I think we are the only technique where an athlete can actually do it to himself. Unlike many of the other techniques, you know, you have to have someone press on you or do different things to you, but this is something that you can truly do to yourself and get yourself ready. Um, I own Track Football Consortium with Tony Holler, which is a biannual consortium of we try and get the best people that we can whenever we can to come speak. Um, and we talk about changing training to get away from the old-fashioned, let's sit in the weight room and uh, listen to music, talk, and maybe do a few sets here and there to actually get out and making people faster. Um, and I think we've had a pretty good impact. I think in the state of Illinois this year, we've had the fastest times in the state and it's all i can't say it's all us but you know we're seeing difference in training and you have to run really fast in illinois if you want to make it to the finals uh, almost as fast as in texas uh, we had three kids that went under 10-5 this year wow. which is which is pretty fast for a bunch of high school kids that you know if you understand our weather here in chicago um it's cold most of track season uh, for example, on my sectional meet, which is the week before the state finals, we had ice on our track. Wow. That must be um, interesting challenges in terms of training. Oh, it's, it's horrendous. Um, it's a nightmare. Um, I think that's about all I do. Uh, I write for uh, Simply Faster and some other people, and I, you know, Just Fly Sports. Uh, here and there, I pop up. Uh, yeah. I think that's me. Those those, uh, those websites I always recommend to people if they want to have all their assumptions challenged. And um, <laughs> you, you alluded to it, you know, traditional training in, in team sports, definitely in rugby, I'm guessing in football, is the idea that maximal strength and on-field performance is the perfect, you know, 
one correlation. And yes. one of your you know, most prominent articles was you know, basically how squatting can make you slower. Yeah. So would, you, would you kind of like to ex- expound on why that is the case and what to do about it? So kind of the background behind that was uh, I played football in college at Northern Illinois. Uh, when I was done there, I was a GA there for two years in strength and conditioning. Uh, my head coach, Jim Zelensky, who's at University of Illinois, was awesome. Uh, but he was in, that was the very beginning of the NSCA. And so we were, you know, squat clean and clean was really controversial back when I was doing it. Should we clean? Should we not clean? I don't know. And you had the same wars that you have about every other little thing today. Um, and so when I decided I didn't want to be in a weight room 12 hours a day and I wanted to be a high school teacher and a high school coach, uh, I of course got a strength. I was a strength coach and football coach and track coach at the high school I was at and still am at. And I went with the old-fashioned, okay, here we go. We're going to do the NSCA squats, and we're going to get really good. And Yeah, and bigger, faster, stronger. Let's put those numbers up on the wall. Uh, and we weren't winning. And so I thought, well, maybe we're not strong enough. So I went out. I spent a lot of time at Westside Barbell with Louis Simmons. And I learned about all of his stuff, and he's a brilliant guy, and the people there are awesome. You can't find a nicer group of people that will give you everything that they have. Um, but I still wasn't getting the results. And Louis actually said to me, you know, Chris, it's time for you to move on. This this isn't for you. Um, even though I have trained a couple great sprinters, uh, you need to find other things to get answers. And so I've always been kind of, and I've been doing this for 28 years now, uh, Going down that path is, all right, we're still not winning. What do I need to do? What do I need to change? And so I've, you know, like a lot of younger coaches, they bounce around and find their their self-gurus and people who know a lot. And you, this is before email and stuff. So you would call them up on the phone or you'd handwrite letters and say, hey, can I come out? I'll pay you for your time. Um, And so you would show up at people's doors and get what you could. And then come back home and see what you could apply. And over time, it got to the point where, you know, powerlifting and and squatting wasn't the answer. Because I saw guys that could really squat well and couldn't run. And guys that couldn't squat, but they could really run. Um, I had the opportunity to work with some really good Bahamian sprinters. I mean, world champions. Uh, And they would come and they couldn't lift any weights, but they could run 10 flat. And so, wait a minute. If you can run 10 flat, but I don't think you could pick up that barbell over there and and do anything with it, what's going on here? And so I kind of went down that road of, all right, let's let's see what happens if we get rid of squats. See, that's the difference there because a lot of coaches would look at that and think, well, if we do some squats now, he's going to run (laughs) 9.5. Yeah, but see, that's that's where I didn't have that. I didn't have those results. Yeah. All right. So I got a kid that squats 500 pounds. You're, you're a senior in high school and you squat 500 pounds, but you can only run 11.4. And you know what? When you didn't squat 500 pounds, you ran 11.1. What's going on with that? Mm. Why is this happening? Um, so I started eliminating all the powerlifting and we started running really fast. Um, and it's not like I come from, uh, you know, I, I teach and coach in upper class areas. So we don't have, uh, you know, we're a bunch of country club kids. 
uh, we should be good at tennis, swimming, and golf. Yeah. There's no way we should be in the state finals and, and winning, you know, running some of the fastest times in the history of the state of Illinois. Um, so as I started to get rid of more and more powerlifting and, and go more toward the training, we got better and better results. Uh, so there came a time when I came in contact with the mysterious, legendary DB Hammer um, and did quite a, quite a lot of work with him. Um, and we started writing, you know, kind of the way it worked was if we write articles for his website, he would teach us. That was kind of the payoff. And so we started going further and further down that road of, okay, let's get rid of squats. Let's get rid of all this other stuff. And uh, that's when I wrote that, that squat article from back in the InnoSport days, which I don't th- even think it's out on the internet anywhere anymore. Um, but I know it made a lot of people angry. Um, for sure. One prominent powerlifter called me a pencil neck and told me he was going to come out and do stuff to me. <laughs> and I said, all right, fine, come on out. <laughs> Whatever you want, man, because I know well, I'm not even going to get into it. Um, but yeah, it made a lot of people angry because we were getting the results for our goals. And remember, our goals is, can you run fast? Mm. Can you get from point A to point B faster than this guy here? Because really, that's what wins games. Um, and so that became my metric. I got rid of the the 400-pound club and the 450 club and the 500-pound club and the total club and all that. And I said, let's just change. Let's get rid of powerlifting and lifting weights and let's just call it exercise. Yeah. So in the world of exercise, what are the things that are the most important for us to win football games and track meets? I think that would be speed, whether it's a 40-yard dash or 100-meter dash or 200-meter dash. That's what we're concerned in. So I broke down, okay, fly 10s, they are a base of speed because most high school kids don't know how to run 10 meters really fast. And, and as you were telling me earlier with your team, we had, you had to break it down to five meters just to get them to, to crank it up. I'm sorry, that was pre-recording, but we were having that discussion earlier. Um, and so I just renamed the, the things on the record board for things that I thought were really important for running fast. Um, and once I got that down, then I started working with some other people. Um, uh, Sean Allen, who's, who owns the gate guys, which is a phenomenal website and resource for gate assessment, whether it's feet, ankles, and things like that. I mean, we had weekly meetings Thursday night, eight o'clock, I show up at his office and we break down running film and, and trying to decipher and decode and pull apart the Gordian knot of sprinting and come up with things that, that we could work on, that we could quantify to make faster runners. Uh, and about midway through, you know, not, I'm st- I still work with Sean all the time, uh, but then Franz Bosch, I bought his DVD. <laughs> I didn't watch it for about a year. I mean, I watched it for the first time, and I thought, well, this is A skips, P skips. I know that shit doesn't. Well, can I, oh, fuck yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you can you can drop any language you want. <laughs> I don't. I know that doesn't work. How do I know that? Because I had guys that could do a skips and b skips better than the video. 
I mean, we could line up and look like that and look great, but wait a minute, this guy that's doing A skips and B skips perfectly, he can't run to save his life. So I don't see that carryover there. So I got to, I got to cut the weight. I got to get rid of the dead weight and, and pare this down to what works better. Uh, so I sat on the Bosch stuff for about a year and then for some reason I came back to it. I guess I just had a more open mind when I watched it the second time and I thought, wow, this is good. I got to buy the book. And so I bought that book running. I was like, wow, this stuff is mind blowing. So then this is now when they have email. So I emailed them and kind of had the same relationship that I had with DB Hammer where I would pay him and he would, you know, he'd respond to my emails. I would pay, pay for his time because now I know as a really busy person who has, you know, a social media presence, you know, I get emails every day for people asking for stuff and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I have to set apart times in my day just to respond to people because I don't want to, I remember when I was young and I was looking for answers. I don't want to be the guy that says, I don't have time for you. Mm. Um, so I try to respond, but so I learned a lot from that. And a lot of what I was learning from Franz coincided with what I was doing with Sean. And uh, I just kind of kept building on what was going on and recording everything and videotaping everything and measuring things and, and seeing what worked and what didn't work and kind of got to the point where I'm at today where, you know, I've kind of narrowed it down to some specific things and which happened to coincide with what Franz talks about. Um, but I, but I measure stuff. Um, I videotape stuff. Um, and I'm getting really precise about measuring, uh, even even running mini hurdles, I have different size PVC pipes that you run over so I can see how wide you're getting. Because if you, that new research that came out, uh, uh, just came out um, two months ago about stride width when accelerating and sprinting, phenomenal stuff. Uh, Nagahara, Japanese guy, uh, phenomenal research, simple, beautifully written, great information. Uh, and I read that and I was like, how come people aren't going nuts about this stuff? I mean, this is this is what people need to be looking at. I mean, not so much stride length because everyone's stride length is different, but their stride width. Wrong, wrong plane of movement for people to get their heads around it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at today. So I kind of got rid of the – to answer the question, uh, I got rid of the squat stuff because it wasn't working. Uh, my guys weren't getting faster if they squatted more weight. And that was quarter squat, half squat, full squat, uh, rubber bands, releases, chains, uh, all that. This, I had a guy this preseason, pre squat went up like this, jump actually went down. And if you think, well, that's the influence of a squat on a jump, there's a degree of mechanical similarity between the two. Can you imagine Absolutely. what that's done to a sprint? Yeah, gait is gait. And, and jumping is gait. You may have to jump away from the grizzly bear instead of run from the grizzly bear or crawl away from the grizzly bear. It all carries over. So in a gym with no squat rack and no Olympic lifting, what is the stuff that matters and the stuff that works? Uh, so, so, and I've said this in another podcast, I train seasonally. So here in Chicago, December, January, February, March, and sometimes May, Sometimes September, it gets really cold here mm -hmm. uh, where you can't go outside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in my wintertime, um, if we are going to get stronger, 
I spend a lot of time on isometric strength. Mm -hmm. um, and I weight it down. So it's kind of the Caldeeds triphasic stuff. Um, I s tend to spend more time in the isometric phase than the other phases. Um, I like my K-boxes a lot. Um, and, I, and I do them differently. Um, I do them a lot of different ways rather than the stuff that you see people doing it on YouTube. Um, yeah, that's, that's the basis of my what I call my winter workouts. Um, and then other days, we'll pull. Um, we do sled runs. Well, I have a 1080, so that makes it different. Um, but we'll do a five-meter starts. And, you know, and, and what I see is if how fast can you get to that first step? Uh, and, the, again, the research that uh, the J.B. Morin crew came out with is when they said – the fastest guys are getting to that first step faster. That's the biggest difference between a uh, 10 flat and a 10 five guys. How fast can you get to that first step? That's the key. So that thing that you posted, and I know you, I'm giving you credit because I don't know who posted it originally, uh, but Jake Schuster. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Him. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm not a big fan of memes because <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the people who say, uh, Turmeric will kill you if you eat, you know, come on. <laughs> and people look at the meme and go, that's right, turmeric could kill you. I'm never touching it. No, no, no. But that meme, I saw that. It was like it hit me right between the eyes. Sport is just like the thing says, the concentric, how fast can you move your body in a concentric load, an unweighted concentric load? And so what I do is I hook my gym aware or my 1080 and I'll measure your first step. Like how fast can you move to that first step? And I'll cut it. So I, on my 1080, I'll set it so uh, I'll stop the measurement at 0.5 meters. Okay. You know, how fast can you get to two, two and a half feet? Um, and if I have someone that's really strong and they can squat a lot, they can't, that doesn't always mean they can get to that two meter, that two feet faster than the next guy. Uh, so there has to be something more than that. And I'm not saying that force isn't a huge component, that you need to develop that end of the force spectrum, but there's other ways. So I think like with Cal's triphasic and the overspeed jumps and things like that, <laughs> I've had better results doing unweighted or no weighted stuff than I have had weighting people down. <laughs> so whether you are hanging from rubber bands from my ceiling and you grab up really high, and so your body's deweighted, or I put you on my MVP shuttle, you know, those MVP shuttles that people have in the training rooms that nobody ever uses, but they sit there in their fortune, that thing's a goldmine. Because what you can do on that is you can get in any position that you want, and you can shove your body at zero gravity. And so what has to happen when you shove that fast, if you listen to what Franz Bosch says about co-contractions and muscle slack, in that lighter gravity, your body has, has to organize a lot faster than it does underweight. And so what you're actually teaching that body to do is contract faster and push faster. And I've had elite athletes, professional basketball players, who can't figure out why we're doing everything lightweighted and overspeeded, and yet their vertical jump shoots up four, five, six inches. And they live or die by those numbers. And they live and die by those numbers. That's, that's a lot of money 
if you show up and say, okay, I jumped 38 compared to I jumped 34, it's about a quarter million dollar difference, maybe more than that. Wow. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just curious. You know, I think one of the things that people like about traditional concentric based training is that it's easy to measure. You either did it or you didn't do it. It's easy to progress and stuff like that and, and plan out. Is there any kind of measurement that you're trying to assign to the isometric focus training? Because that's one that, thing that I could kind of see that people might not necessarily like about that. That one I weighed you down. Okay. Um, and that is the only uh, – I'm do. i big into the Bulgarian squits, split squat. Put the one leg back up a little bit higher and sit down in it. Uh, get your shin and your torso to match angles and I'll weight you down. That is the only thing in the weight room that I have found that the better you get at that, the faster you run. And so I've had small guys, 145 pounds, that could hold more than twice their body weight and they run 10.6. But I've also had guys that were could squat the world but they couldn't isometrically hold that weight. You know, they could do they could do like 90 pounds. And they couldn't run. But coach, I squat 500. You know, this should be easy. Uh, maybe maybe not because you're, it's a different body position. It's a different body position completely. And a different skill. A different skill. You know, when people do a heavy squat, they go down and they come back up again. They don't have to hold. And so if you go back to that meme that your buddy posted, again, they're talking about isometric strength. And I know that's not weighted what he was talking about, but the more you can absorb that force and stop that force from squishing you down and spring out again, I think the more explosive you're going to be. Talking about that, you know, uh, a, a guy that I like to follow, William Wayland, specializes in, in combat and, and grappling uh, athletes. He, he made an interesting observation the other day, which is he, abs- absolutely you don't need to squat. But he, he said, you know, guys that tend to espouse that view tend to come more from a, a sports without an external load to be overcome. And the guys that say, absolutely, you must 100% squat come from that contact sport background where you do have to overcome a load. Do you, what's your response to that? Because I know you work in, in football as well. Can, can you see that argument or do you still think it's unnecessary to have a, a very, very heavy load that you're trying to overcome like a squat in a, in a contact sport? Uh, well, so the way I see it is this. You know, part of being a coach is compliance and what you get, what you can get your athletes to do when your back is turned. Mm-hmm. And so that I know with my big guys, because their parents tell them or they read it in some magazine or something like that, you got to squat. You know, that, that's that what pervades our culture is the king of exercises. Uh, yeah. So I got to put it in for the big guys. Uh-huh. Um, do they still run pretty well? They do. And not as well as I like. Um, but it's in there and I get good squat numbers. I, I know how to design weightlifting and powerlifting programs. Um, in fact, what's funny is this weekend at the TFC, a jail Holdsworth, who's one of the great squatters of all time. Guess what he's presenting on? <laughs> no. Oh, really? Why you shouldn't squat. Why powerlifting squats is not helping your athletes. But in, in, in his defense, He's one of the smartest powerlifters, if you read his stuff. Yes, he's very smart. Very smart. And so we had uh, – I, I went out to Columbus. 
he's got an article coming out. It's really funny because he talks about wanting to punch me in the face all the time. And I'm not a big guy like jail. I'm quick. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not big like him. He'll probably miss me a bunch. Um, but we had a long, con- it was me, Cal and him. And we had a long uh, conversation about powerlifting and squats and things like that. And how he kind of came around, and you know, you have to understand the mindset of the meatheads, which he which he calls, you know, the powerlifting group. Um, part of the mindset is, and he and he says this: people will only listen to you in our group if you squat over eight fifty. If you haven't squatted eight fifty, nobody gives a shit about you. Yeah, they're not going to listen to you. Um, and what has happened is there's so many of the professional strength coaches in the NFL in college are Westside Barbell followers, which is why they follow JL. I mean, JL is one of the great all-time powerlifters. Um, and he, he squatted a lot of weight and he deadlifts a lot of weight and benched, I think he benched over a thousand pounds or no, 800 pounds, wow. which I can't even imagine putting my face underneath 800 pounds. You know, it's like being under a car. Um, so when he comes out and says this, people start to listen. And so I think that's the difference between a pencil neck like me, which someone has called me, uh, even though I'm not a small guy, uh, and JL coming out and say that, that that's going to have an impact. It's going to have a big impact. That was why my, uh, my interns last year, the smallest one was uh, 250. Yeah. <laughs> that's you know, my mouthpiece. <laughs> When I was younger, I was bigger, but as you get older, it gets harder to carry all that weight around. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a lot of food after a while, and you start to think, man, I, I'm almost 50. I don't need to be eating that much food. I can't eat two whole pizzas anymore. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not being paid for this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I think, I think you know, you have to do what, what you're, sometimes what your players want and give them what they want. Um, it's like bicep curls and there's nothing worse than you for you than single jointed exercises. But if you don't tell them what to do, they're going to go do it on their own and they're going to probably do a lot more than they probably should. So if you put it on the card, you got a better chance of controlling the negatives of what they think has to happen. Uh-huh. And I'm sure you see it too, that everyone here in, in, in uh, the States, Friday night under the lights, that's the ultimate. You know, that's what the most people participate in and you want to look good in your jersey. So you've got to give them exercises so they look good in their jersey. Half of the battle is what they look like in their uniforms and jerseys so they can do their their pictures and look cool and you got to give them some of that. It's uh, curls get the girls, not isometric Bulgarian split squats. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. I think it's um, that belief, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a belief that's that has started, you know, fifty years ago here, and it, it hasn't left uh, because all the coaches—that's what they did. Um, and if it worked for them, it's going to work for you, and that's what everyone else is doing. So, from a safety standpoint, you can't fire me because if we're doing the same workout that Clemson is doing, then I should be okay. Yeah, Alabama has a lot to. Uh to answer for in that regard yeah 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 but most of us high school coaches don't get to go recruit like clemson in, in alabama and michigan and ohio state and all that yeah you know we've got to get the kids so they have the possibility of getting there yeah i think like, can't... buddy morris said i think when he was at Pitt, i think he was the guy herschel walker 
He said when yeah. he was Herschel Walker's strength coach, the hardest thing he had to do was flip the light switch. Yeah. yeah. He was going to be it. He was going to be it. You know, I live where I live. I live across the street from Bo Jackson. He lives in the gated community. I live on the outside of the gates. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you watch him walk around. No matter what happened to Bo Jackson, whatever training he did, he was going to be that. Unreal athlete. He, oh, if you see him in person, even now, and he's older now, you still look at him and you think, dear God, how could anyone have ever tackled that? He still looks oh, like he'd, he'd run right through you. So that's, you know, it's almost not a surprise that certain elite athletes who are very, very fast are also very, very strong. That's, and, and I think that's where it comes from is you have your Herschel Walker and Bo Jackson. You see them in their, their track tank top and they're jacked out of their mind and you think, that's what we want. We have to build that. Yeah. But people forget that. No, Bo Jackson can, from the 30 and 30, he could stand in waist deep water and do a flip. The power that that generates from jumping out of water is incredible. And to be able to do a flip, yeah. that's unheard of. Yeah, yeah. Unheard of. Coming back to the influence of, of Franz Bosch on, on your work, you know, I, I kind of mentioned off, off the air that Graham Morris, who has been on this podcast, presented for, for my website. We kind of refer to you as like, you know, Franz Bosch, but for people who care about numbers, because you're, you're measuring everything. If it works, it stays. If it doesn't, it's, it's gone. And one I appreciate things, that. That's a that's a compliment. That's a strong compliment. And I I appreciate that. Well, you know, speaking to Graham's braver than I am, and uh, <laughs> he has he, he's got such a good relationship with his guys that he's he's really pushing the envelope in, in terms of what he's doing. And one of the things was, you know, he he took on your idea of you know we're doing these A's, B's, and C's that have been you know bread and butter for track athletes. And he said, well, you know, I don't think these are actually effective in making people faster. And you're starting to, to use more drills that have come from, from guys like Franz Bosch. And I just wanted to ask you why that is and, and what kind of menu uh, of drills are you, are you picking from to, to try and transfer to making your guys faster? So uh, I, I, I steal all of Franz's drills. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, if you look at his attenu- uh, attractors and uh, – you know, all where you need to get to, I think all of his drills get you to that. And there's a target for each of those drills. So whether it's a, you know, fast knee switch or a high hip, a hip lock or a hip tilt or reactive ankles off the ground, those are all parts of running. Where I think in the A, B and C skips, and I don't even, not even sure what a C skip is anymore. I see so many people do different things. Yeah. There's, there's no target involved in those exercises. There's no... There's no real part of running that, that those exercises. I think those were Gerald Mach had no space in Poland to train, and that's what he came up with when he saw running. Um, but I think with the Bosch drills, which is what I call them, um, there's, there's parts of running that you can train to. Um, and so that's why I've kind of incorporated them. And what I really like about about them is you can change the environment. So I think with A and B and C skips and, and the mock drills or the Lauren Seagrave drills, you do those year-round. You never challenge yourself to learn more by doing those. But with Bosch, you can really challenge 
yourself and constantly get to your attractors by changing your environment, changing the time, the speed, the pressure, and all that stuff. Um, and so what I've kind of done um, this summer, uh, one, of the, one of the ways that you can challenge your co-contractions and how this all works is to challenge the time and pressure of, of the drill. And so I have a 1080 sprint. I know I'm lucky. Uh, actually, saved up a lot of money and not cheap. Not cheap at all, but it's a game changer. And so, if I'm looking to change time and pressure in someone's drills, and, and by the way, I'm going to preface this by saying I have film on this, and I am waiting till I'm finished with this. Um, but the the fastest way, and this is against everything that you've heard, um, but. I have changed people's gait the fastest by having them do drills and towing them over speed. Because your body has to react to the ground coming faster, so you have to tense it up quicker. You have to get your ankle in a better position. You have to get your hip in a better position. And so <laughs> I haven't done this with everyone. I only do, I've only been doing it with my older kids, my older athletes, my college athletes, and a couple high school athletes. Um, but we'll do his ankle pop drills uh, at about six meters per second. And you'll see the change in the attitude of the ankle from being one that's kind of hung down a little bit. So it's not dorsiflex to being up more. Um, so it's more of a neutral position. Um, we've done mini hurdles at nine meters per second. That's awesome. It's fast, but you've got to get your foot down in between the hurdle and you have to have a quicker contact time. And your hip has to work faster to get through because you know your target is to not cross my line or hit my PVC pipe that's going down the middle of my mini hurdles. So you have to do that faster. So it's almost like this fast forward feed loop, neural feed loop to get your body into place. And then we'll go back and do normal speed and kids will feel like, oh my God, I'm just bouncing through here. I don't even feel like I'm hit. I'm saying, yeah. And so then we'll go out and sprint and I film them sprinting like, and we'll look at it like, wow, this looks completely different. Um, so we've been doing higher hurdle stuff, you know, the hip hike stuff going over hurdles uh, for longer speeds. I'll tell you at that. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been really kind of wild that I bought this machine thinking, okay, I'm going to do acceleration work and maybe do some accelerate, uh, some overspeed work occasionally. And then I'm finding out I've got that sucker out. I'm towing people all the time. Um, and it's having, uh, it's having huge impacts on their time and their, in their, uh, in their running form. When you, when you select drills to, to try and teach and refine running mechanics, is it that you're you're trying to pick drills for for certain attractors? You know, it, for me in my mind, you know, I'll maybe try and pick one uh, foot contact drill, one switch drill, you know, one pull back, one postural drill, one yes. hip lock. Is it is that how you're doing it? That's how I do it. Yeah. Um, and then I change the environment or change you know where they are in the workout. Like randomly throw it into. Okay, we're doing flight tens. All right, out of nowhere, let's do. Uh, switch drills, you know, I call them boom booms. Yeah. Um, and that's just the sound I want you to make when you hit the ground is boom boom or boom boom boom. Um, so just by changing where you throw them into workout, you're changing 
how your body receives them. So it's a challenge you're learning. You're constantly learning. Is there a set progression to that? You know, because I've, I've, I've tried to map out what I think would be the progression in terms of difficulty. So, you know, if you master this drill, you get the right to do the next one and so on and so on. So, yeah. you know, can, can you hold the position statically? Can you do it dynamically but not moving? Can you do it dynamically and moving? Then we're going to add in some movement in another segment, then maybe an unstable load. And Yeah, that's how I do it too. Uh, we start just by standing there. Can you pick up your leg and hold it for five seconds and not change your position? Okay, so now in that position, your partner is going to come give you a little nudge or you're going to hold that position and take a five-pound plate and swing it around your head and make a halo over your head or hold, just hold it out to one, one side. And so when, we, when I feel like I've challenged your environment in that standing position, okay, okay, now let's switch it. So now left leg becomes your right leg and you switch them up and down. Mm. And then we'll go through that progression. So with a team, it's not suddenly we're doing all these crazy things. It's a long, you know, with my football team, I have 18 weeks. Okay. So I'm not giving you the most complicated things on week four. We're still doing the basics because you have to get that down. You just can't. It's the American way to find the hardest thing and then go to that right away. Yeah, yeah. Go to chapter 21, find that thing, check that out, and that's what I'm doing first. Record Screw that, the rest put of this stuff. The, in the YouTube hype video. Yeah. <laughs> so I think patience is key. And you watch, and when you feel like they've got it, okay, let's start moving now. Or um, The only thing that I'll throw you into right away is mini hurdles. Um, like, like a wicket, or are you looking yeah, for a wicket? Yeah, a wicket. A wicket. Okay. How, how do you manipulate that drill to ensure that stride width that you talked about? So I have, if I'm on a track, I put my mini hurdles or wickets. I don't know where wicket comes from. Isn't a wicket a thing in cricket? Yeah, I, I just stole it from Altus. <laughs> um, and I guess Stu doesn't call them mini hurdles, and they told him, no, they're wickets. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they're mini hurdles. They're little, they're, they're little hurdles. Name. Yeah. Like a small horse, you call a mini horse, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so I'll straddle, I'll straddle the line with my hurdles. Um, but what I have found is to give you an even better target, I've taken a two-inch wide PVC pipe, and I've, I know this is bad, and I've built cradles for them. Yeah. So they hold. Uh, the PVC pipe, so if you step on it, the PVC pipe spins so you don't trip. Okay. But that's an even better target for you not to hit. Yeah. So uh, be- no no queuing. You're just basically saying, right, don't touch that. And then you're shaping the environment for them to self-organize. Yes. Interesting. I'm going to have to think about a way to, uh, to try and do that here. So here's – you go – I don't know if you guys don't – you got to have a hardware store there. It's having the linguistic skills to get what you want. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> I didn't think of that. Yeah. Uh, but I just build little cradles out of little short pieces of PVC with the joint. Uh-huh. You know, I get, a, I get a three-way. And so you put a bottom yep. and then a top that holds it in and then one across. So it basically looks like an H. Yep. And then the pipe sits inside the H. Ah, uh, Okay. And so if you step on it, the, a, the pipe spins inside of the H. Got you. 
Okay. So you can't trip or, or fall or hit it. You, if you hit it and you brush it, it spins. But you still get that feedback that you did it wrong. You, you get a, I think you get a better feedback. Awesome. Um, just completely change topic. You, sure. you mentioned RPR, which I know yeah. is ad- adapted from Be Activated by Douglas Hill. And this is another yes. thing that I've tried to, to use uh, this year and last year with some of my guys. I'm currently at two players out of uh, 38 that use it before a game. And it's, it's one of those things, again, I'm not intelligent enough to explain why it works, but if, if you do the range of motion test before and after, you can see immediately something is going on. Yes. What's going on? So there's, there's no real research to explain it. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the points are not novel. They're really... Chapman's reflexes that that were discovered in eighteen eighties, but what Douglas did is he found a sequence that gets your body to respond to those points. Um, and so, the really the magic in what Douglas did were the, was, is the sequencing of these points. And so, when you go a proper sequence, it's kind of like a a neural loop that your body recognizes. And again, will organize itself so it reuses the muscles that are supposed to be used uh, instead of having one muscle do two jobs. So say, for example, you aren't using your glute to extend. And I'm not saying that, okay, but I'm doing all these exercises and my butt's working. Yeah, that's probably true. But what we're looking for is the initiator of the movement. What is starting that drive? Because when we look at the psoas, you know, that's the initiator of the movement. It is not the only hip flexor. It's the guy that starts the whole chain going. And then the others kick in. And then the others kick in through the range of motion. Um, so let's say your hamstring's doing the job of your glute. But your hamstring also has to do the job of flexing the knee. That's where you get into these hamstring problems as you're asking the hamstring to do too much. Because what's going to happen is if it's doing two jobs at once for a biarticulate muscle that's not supposed that's supposed to stay isometric in, in movement, um, it's going to confuse it and it's got to give something up. And so what it normally gives up is that knee flexion to save the hip. Because if you think about it, really our goal in life is to run away from a grizzly bear. If you blow your hamstring, you can still hobble away. But if you pull that glute, you're on the ground and you're lunch. So that's how we see the body picking and choosing things to let us move. Um, So if we can reset or wake up the glute using our wake-up drills, you can make sure that the glute's doing its job, which is hip extension, which allows the hamstring to do its job of knee flexion. And so what we see is a lot of times people have hamstring issues because their glute's not initiating that movement. And the firing, you're confusing the hamstring and your brain says, yeah, too much. We're closing shop. We're done. And that's where you get the grip. Would you see that in a squat where some people initiate with their lower back rather than their glutes? Absolutely. Um, And that's what JL does all this stuff with all of his powerlifters is, you know, if you read Dave Tate's thing about how it changed his his squat, and he had that 80-pound PR at 48 years of age. Um, basically, he didn't have a lateral chain. 
and JL woke up his lateral chain because you read Dave's testimony and he says, you know, I shook like a leaf anytime I put, you know, 750 or 800 or whatever ungodly number he had on his back. And he goes, JL, and, and this is what was awesome is JL took the class on Sunday. He was on Dave Monday morning. And so it probably wasn't the cleanest reset because, you know, it does take some, the more practice you get, the better you get, kind of like everything else. And uh, Dave went underneath and he he threw that weight up. And there's multiple powerlifters who have all had that same, that same response um, that, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Um, so that's kind of what... Uh, Douglas's magic is is the sequencing of that where the body recognizes those those wake up spots that we call I call them light switches and it organizes the body to say okay I can move so when you have those guys that just get reset and they get up off the table it's like oh my god I feel like I weighed nothing it's because their body has been compensating for so long and all these muscles have woken up and they're standing you up now they're holding your body the way it's supposed to be held you know you've got lateral support you've got extension you've got flexion you've got all these things you've got your lats working as stabilizers now instead of just a piece of meat so i can do lat pulls type stuff cuz really lat your lats are a huge stabilizer in sprinting well and you know it, they they cover basically the entire length of the spine right yeah they hold you in place yeah but i've got lots of film where guys their lats are off and you can see uh you know their their torso is curved in when they go and you reset their lats and all of a sudden Boom! There they go. In fact, I think I, I got YouTube videos up of, of of people that literally have come in. I filmed them before they've been reset. I reset them and I bring them back out in the street and I film them again. It's like, wow! There's a there's a big difference. Is it is it a case of you know kind of inhibiting uh, overactive tissues? Um, yeah, it kind of it, it kind of gets in that polyvagal theory. I think that's the way we see it. Um, you're just taking away some levels of fear and basically telling your body, "Hey, it's okay to to use this now," because we'll develop compensation patterns over time or from a traumatic event or all kinds of different things. But a lot of times, the body gets used to it and says. Yeah, we're comfortable doing this now. We're not really going to go back to using that glute because that costs a lot of energy. And we really don't want to be that powerful because it's much easier to be just like we are right now. We're, we're running at bare minimum because really our bodies are built to be at bare minimum. You know, we're getting ready for a famine or, or stuff like that. So let's, let's peel it on back to, to basic stuff. I suppose it's quite counterintuitive that if you know if you're doing a lot of it's almost like meditation, you know, belly breathing. You know, for for our guys on the day of a game, we do eyes closed, belly breathing, which is simply right. meditation. We just don't tell them, but it's it's quite counterintuitive for a lot of guys that you're actually going to perform better if you're in that state than if you're you know super tight, amped up, which is what most people think you need to be. Yeah, uh, one of my ex athletes. Uh, he is in, I shouldn't say this, but he is in, I'll just say he's in Coronado, San Diego. And he sent okay. me a text <laughs> last night. And the, I can't think of the guy, it's Mark Mariangi, or he used to be the head, the master chief of the entire 
Navy SEALs. And my ex-athlete texted me and said, this guy came out who is one of the baddest of SEALs, baddest SEAL of all time, came out and did an entire thing on the importance of uh, belly breathing, um, parasynthetic states and things like that and the impact that that has on what you're going to do for us. Crazy. Which is, you know, if you look at Cal's presentation on YouTube about breathing and all that, I mean, it's right along what Cal's talking about in his YouTube videos. And with, with profound effects, I think. Was it, with profound said, effect. Huge had, effects. Yeah, first night of real sleep in a, a long time. Yeah. Um, so the, the breathing's huge. And unfortunately for me, you know, I've seen Douglas do his thing many, many times. And the first couple of times I saw him, I just kind of blew the breathing thing off. Ah, breathing, yeah, yeah. Let's get to the cool parts and, you know, make some changes. But really the breathing is fundamental. So my teams, we have a big focus on breathing. We do team breathing. Um, before our football, football practices, they get into a, they kind of have this square where everyone's facing in and everyone breathes together for three or four minutes. And the captains are looking in. And when you see someone that's not breathing together, you know who's not ready for practice. And you'll have captains call out the guys that, are you with us or not? You know, if if this isn't a time for you to be with us, then it's time for you to go away and not be part of our practice today because you're not mentally here. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So it's a great way to, to create a uh, immediate bond and get ready to practice, and you know who's ready to go. And those who aren't ready usually toe up and say, yeah, let's, I'll get into this, and I'll start breathing. Uh, it's kind of a cool thing. Well, you know, just finishing up, I don't want to keep you all day because we've already done an hour <laughs> here, but can you talk a little bit about your, your uh, football track and field consortium and what the idea behind it is and what the plans are for the future? So <laughs> Tony Holler and I uh, like to speak, and because there's weird things like you can't speak, you can only speak once every three years at different clinics and things like that. We said, you know what, not only do we want to speak and share our ideas, but we also want to bring in people that we want to hear speak, and why don't we have our own consortium? And then, you know, if I want to hear someone speak, I'll invite them out and pay them money, and I get to hear what they have to say. Uh, so we started it, and we started bringing people out. This will be our fifth one this coming weekend, uh, four days from now. It's June 20th now. Um, and so we try and find as many, you know, as many people that we're interested in and we think other people are interested in to come out. And the concept is you don't need to be a single sport athlete. You need to be a multiple sport athlete here in the States in high school. And if you really want to be something, you have to run fast. And the old-fashioned NSCA, BFS, bigger, faster, stronger stuff isn't going to get you there. We want to share ideas that we have that have helped kids get there because Tony and I have, uh, you know, I'm not blowing myself up here, but we have a, between the two of us, we have a really good track record here in the state of Illinois for a track and field um, and I used to coach football, and, and we had a really good run for a upper-class suburban school. Um, and there's some kids that could really fly, and that went on to do great things in college and things like that. Um, uh, 
And so we are trying to change how you train kids, how you train athletes. Uh, and we bring people in to share new ideas. And I'm not saying they all believe what we believe, uh, but we bring in other ideas that are different from the norm. Um, like we had Stu McMillan from Altus out last year. Stu speaks once a year and he picked our clinic to come speak at. Wow. Uh, we, had two, we had 200 people come and he, and he was great. Um, we find other high school coaches that are doing cool things, find college coaches. Um, uh, this coming December, uh, I think we have, a, a, again, a really awesome lineup. You know, Ken Clark is supposed to come. Uh, Derek Hansen is supposed to come. Mike Young is supposed to come. In addition to, you know, I, Cal always comes just because Cal's awesome to hang out with. One of the most fun people. He's a fun, fun dude to hang out with. He's a fun dude to hang out with. Some stories. Um, He's great stories, and he's a phenomenal presenter, as smart as anyone out there, even though he tells you. I, he always opens up with, well, I'm just the dumbest guy in the room. Shut up, Cal. I've heard that one a thousand times. Everyone knows that's not true. Yeah. You are not the dumb. Oh, yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. Honestly, um, I, I struggle to keep up with him when he speaks. You know, you look at the notes when he's done, and it's like boom, 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 boom. You're like, whoa. And here's the killer, and this this drives me nuts. But you know, when he makes his presentations, he, when he's, watch him, watch him every clinic you go to, he sits in the back. He's making his presentation based on what he's hearing in front of him. Wow. And he puts that together. So either he wants to create an argument or go along with what someone says. So it may seem like he has this really planned out presentation. He's making that stuff up minutes before because he's gathering ideas from what, what he sees going on, what he hears people talking about, and he just throws that stuff together. Wow. And so he, like he goes, what do you want me to talk on? I said, Cal, does it really matter? You're going to make up stuff anyway. Well, give me a ballpark. Just give me <laughs> something that I can kind of base it on. He said, all right, here's some ideas. Incredible uh, coach though because you, you – you, you can see that progression in his work as well. You know, similar, oh, yeah. similar to you with the track stuff in terms of what he's doing, you can see how he's, he's changing every year what he does. Oh, and the, he's got big stuff coming. Uh, someone donated him an incredible sum of money at the university uh, to build what this, the donor said, I want the most advanced training facility in the world. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, and Cal, you, here's the money. You're going to build it. If anyone else says anything, uh, I'm done. Only Cal can do it. So he's got, he's got, he's already got synthetic ice. Um, and he's, and you know him, he's got every machine to hook up to you and get data. And, you know, he changes his stuff like me. He changes his stuff based on the data that he gets right there. And he's the first one to say, oh, this doesn't work. That's not what he says. This sucks get this out of here. I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I keep doing this and this isn't working. It's gone. Is there uh, recordings of the, the presentations? Uh, we did last time. And last time I had the benefit of being at in school. So we have a video lab there yeah. with kids who will do that stuff for you. Yeah. The thought of me taking this onto my computer where I think I have 500 megabytes of space left because it's an ancient computer, yeah. there's no way we could do it. Oh, um, so we thought about it, and it was very stressful last time. We had a, comp- a camera that crapped out. Um, you always had to check microphones. 
and we're both teachers. Most of us are teachers and we're like, you know, it's summertime. Yeah, let's you don't want to hear- fill your uh, holiday time with that. <laughs> yeah, let's just have some people talk. Uh, and we build in a half hour in between sessions. So we encourage people to stand around and talk and ask questions and talk to other people and share ideas. Um, and what's cool about this one, uh, like I said, JL is going to do uh, his thing on uh, the squat. Uh, Cameron Joss is coming out to do his stuff on sled towing um, after he had the 1080 and worked with a bunch of NFL guys. Um, but the last two sessions, uh, we're going to have RPR level two and RPR neural, which are our two next levels for RPR. And uh, Dan Fichter and Carrie Egan, Dr. Carrie Egan, uh, she teaches RPR neural. She just got back from the Netherlands. She taught a level two out in the Netherlands uh, two weeks ago. Uh, and they're going to present that, which is really, really wild stuff. Uh, the RPR neural uh, is her stuff, and she does a lot with vision, color, sound, vestibular systems, tempos, things like that. So using those things to help reset the athlete's mind. Uh, because like, like we know, everything is based on what your vision perceives, and you respond to how you're, you're perceiving the world. And sometimes that takes you the wrong way, and she's going to show ways that you can help reset your athlete to, to use her vision. I mean... 90% of what we see is peripheral, but yet we never really learn how to use it. And so if you want someone to see the field better and things like that, she's got stuff to help develop, uh, you know, that field of vision where most of us are so concerned with what we're looking at. But really when you're playing a sport, you've got to see, like in football, you've got to see what the other 21 guys are doing and have a feel for that. And you just yeah, started a whole bunch of uh, reading there for me. <laughs> <laughs> Where can, um, where can people find more information on you and, and all your businesses? Uh, my, my website is Slow Guy Speed School. That's my company in my basement here. Um, it's got some videos from the old TFC and some videos I made years ago, which are still kind of what I do, the basis of what I do. I've got more coming. I'm going to do an agility one. I have a great agility program that works really well uh, that I'm going to work on this summer. Um, reflexiveperformance.com is, is the Reflect RPR website. That's got a list of our clinics that are coming up, uh, and we've got a lot more coming with that. Um, Track Football Consortium is the TFC website, uh, and December will be big. Um, and this one's good here. It's summertime is always slow. We always get about 100 people in the summertime, which is great. The smaller numbers are great. You get to meet a lot more people, uh, but the winter ones are there's a lot of people that show up. Um, I think we've got NFL coaches coming to the one this weekend, which is cool. You know, NFL coaches coming to see high school coaches. That's, it's always a trip. I think it's a, it's a good sign as well, because, you know, sometimes coaches at the, the highest level have their reputation, not necessarily being open to ideas. Yes. I, I have seen that. <laughs> yeah. I have seen that personally. Well, listen, Chris, I, I always say to people, you know, uh, if you don't feel like a fraud at least a couple of times a year, you're not pushing yourself to learn. And I have to say this, <laughs> this hour has been one of those. It's raised some serious questions, but I, um, I massively appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, no problem. Anytime. Enjoyed it. So I'll, I'll try and make it out to one of the TFCs as well. We got great food here in Chicago. Deep pan pizza. <laughs> <laughs> that's, just the, that's just the top. That's just the icing on the cake. 
we got better stuff than that. Oh man, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>